Over the next four Sundays, we are, God willing, going to make a journey through Luke's Gospel and the first chapter in a series of Advent sermons. What is Advent, you ask? Well, Advent is the season when Christians reflect on the coming of Jesus. It is a time when we praise God for the gift of his Son, our Saviour, when, out of amazing love for us, Jesus came into the world to bear our sins. We celebrate the baby born in the manger who grew to be the man upon the cross. And it's also a time when we prepare our hearts for the return of Jesus, when he will come to gather his people to be with him forever. Advent combines looking back with thanksgiving and looking forward with expectation. And as we consider this text before us, read by Hilary, we need to be reminded of the setting of the first Advent season. There was a dark and devilish backdrop to these events. Three things in particular for you to note. Firstly, Judea was ruled by wicked King Herod. He was not a Jew, but a descendant of Esau and Edomite. And he had been placed on the throne and called King of the Jews by Mark Antony, who helped him establish his rule. And while in worldly terms he was a competent king, and we visiting Israel today can still see uh, his mark on the landscape of the significant architectural achievements that were uh, built during his time. But in latter days, Herod spiralled into maniacal paranoia. So much so that ancient historians say it was preferable to be Herod's dog than Herod's son. Secondly, also holding great influence in that season were religious leaders, the high priestly family, who were not true descendants of Aaron, but had obtained their positions of power through compromise with the Roman authorities and ingratiating themselves with Herod. They were Sadducees meaning they did not believe in the supernatural, in angels or demons, in heaven or hell, or in the possibility of resurrection. Their focus was solely on the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, believing that it alone had authority to teach how God's people ought to live. Thirdly, there had been silence from God for four centuries. The last prophetic word was spoken by Malachi at the close of what we know as the Old Testament. And God had inspired the prophet to promise that one like Elijah would come. We read of this in Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. For 400 years, the question once asked by King Zedekiah of Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 37 verse 17, where Zedekiah said, Is there any word from the Lord? This question kept being answered in the negative. God had chosen for these four centuries to remain speechless. So the nation of Israel, as the prophecy of Isaiah describes them, was a people who walked in darkness. Isaiah 9 verse 2. But if you know that verse, you will realize that it foretold that a great light was about to break through. And we see the inklings of this in our text this morning. So let's note first, blameless and childless. 
blameless and childless. We learn by great contrast to the religious hierarchy of the time that there was a man called Zechariah, whose name means my God remembers, who had a bona fide priestly pedigree. And this was further enhanced by the fact that he was married to a descendant of Aaron. And we learn two very important details about this couple. Firstly, verse 6, we read, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Zechariah and Elizabeth were blameless. In a spiritually dark time, they shone out as bright beacons of godliness which makes the words of verse 6 or verse 7 all the more unexpected. Verse 7 says, But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. This couple were blameless yet childless. And this is a text that causes real problems for advocates of a health and wealth message the prosperity gospel preachers who erroneously teach that bad things don't happen to good people. In the scriptures, children are declared to be a blessing from God. And so the natural assumption was that a childless couple was in receipt of God's judgment upon their sin. That was a common mindset in the first century and people often think that way still today. That if bad things are happening in someone's life, it must be as a result of God's judgment upon their sin. We see this in in John chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. There we read, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus goes on to explain that their logic is flawed. This blindness did not arise from the person's sin or his parents' sin. As we know from Psalm 103 verse 10, that he, the Lord, does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Yes, there are times when tragedy and trouble come upon us as a consequence of our sins. But these are not God's judgment. These are indeed God's good, loving gifts to us, trying to call us to our senses, to help us see how much harm is done to us through our sins. And so we would turn away from them. No, the wages of sin, the judgment for sin is eternal death. And that is either born by Christ upon the cross for those who are saved or experienced eternally in hell by those who remain in their sin. But God's judgment on our sin is not parceled out into our lives in daily doses through all kinds of difficulty. So we're introduced to this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, both blameless and childless. Secondly, we need to think about scenes that are both fearful and wonderful. Zechariah was only a bit player in the life of the nation. He was only one of some 32,000 priests who were each waiting for the opportunity to serve in the temple and to make their approach to God by entering into the holy place. Only the high priest could go into the holy of holies and that only once a year. Whereas priests could enter into the holy place to attend to the golden lampstand or to replace the showbread or to burn incense on the altar. 
that sat right in front of the curtain that divided the holy place from the holy of holies. But each priestly division, there were 24 of those, only served for two weeks each year. So to be chosen to burn incense was the highest honour that any ordinary priest could ever know. This was the nearest that anyone outside of the high priest could ever get to the symbolic presence of God behind the curtain. And this great honour fell to Zechariah. He, by lottery, by mere chance, was chosen for this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But of course we know that God was controlling these events. For Zachariah, this was going to be the very best thing that would happen to him on that day or in that year, perhaps even in his lifetime. This was as good as it gets for him. Luke tells us firsthand that the whole worshipping community had their focus upon him in these moments. It says, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. They were waiting for Zechariah to re-emerge and to pronounce over them the ironic blessing. Without warning, Zechariah discovered he was not alone in the holy place, but had been joined by an angel, causing, as angels always cause, great fear to rush upon him. Verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. Zachariah's prayer had been answered. But what was the core content of this prayer? Well, if you turn over a page into chapter 2, there you'll discover that the devout and righteous Jews of the day, people like Anna and Simeon, were waiting for the coming deliverer. They had known God's promise to Eve millennia past that The hope of the world was to be found in a baby's cry. And throughout these centuries, God's faithful remnant were waiting for the news of the promised baby. Zechariah and Elizabeth were surely among that number. Michael Wilcock comments, The awesome, once-in-a-lifetime privilege of serving in the temple must have carried Zechariah's mind beyond the personal tragedy of childlessness to the even more poignant longing of the nation to which he belonged. In short, we may take it that his prayer was for the coming of Israel's saviour and that the good news which the angel brings is not so much that Elizabeth shall bear a son, as that she shall bear a son who is to announce the Saviour's immediate coming. Lots of versions, the NIV, the New Living Translation, the Contemporary English Version, the Good News Bible, they translate verse 17 that he will go before the Lord. But that's not what the original says. The message of the angel was he will go before him. But who is this mysterious him? Well, Zechariah would know well the words of the prophecy of Malachi, foretelling the Elijah-like prophet who would announce the coming of the Lord. Zechariah knew exactly what the angel was talking about. This was a fearful and wonderful message that he had been brought. Thirdly, faithless and speechless. Upon hearing the angel's words, Zechariah looked at himself and in his mind he looked at his wife 
and his belief was crushed and doubts flooded in. How could they bear the responsibility of raising this wonderful child who was to be born? They now in their older age. And in verse 19, there's almost an element of humour in the angel's reply. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. It's as if Gabriel is saying to him, for this one time in your life, you're standing outside the Holy of Holies, but you're stuck behind this thick veil. You can't even go into this earthly man-made sanctuary. I've just come from the heavenly sanctuary where throughout endless ages I've ministered in the presence of Almighty God. I think it would probably be in your best interests to believe my message for you. It was typical of the Jews of his day, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.22, that Jews demand signs. Zechariah asks for a sign and he himself becomes the sign as he's struck dumb, rendered unable to speak. Perhaps you're tempted to feel that if you had been there, you might have done better than Zachariah. You would not have doubted the angel's word. Of course, the scriptures aren't given to us that we might sit in judgment upon the flawed characters we find in its pages. Rather, they've been given, at least in part, to help us see the foolishness and feelings of our own hearts. At the end of the book of Luke, we read about a journey that two men made to a place called Emmaus. And Jesus joined these disheartened travellers who couldn't process, who couldn't make sense of the events that they'd witnessed in Jerusalem. And in words of gentle rebuke, he challenged them saying in Luke 24, verse 25, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And we must confess this is true of us also, that we are slow of heart to believe. I know this, and I'm confident that your heart, like mine, is often racked by worry. Worry and faith are both belief systems about the future. But only one of these trusts in the goodness and the greatness of a loving God who holds that future in his hands. Yes, many times we doubt God. We don't take him at his word. And here we see that Zachariah was faithless and consequently speechless. Finally, we see joyful and thankful. What a story Zachariah had to tell when he re-emerged from the temple. Of course, he couldn't speak. And we see the first recorded game of Christmas charades as he explains that he's seen a vision. Zechariah returns home and the angel's words come true, as Elizabeth conceives. And we're given a little insight into the, the pain of her childlessness as she testifies in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach, or as many translations correctly render it, disgrace among people. Elizabeth felt the shame of barrenness and clearly people had made their disapproval of her very plain. She had been disgraced, but now she was graced by God. 
not just in the gift of a child, but in the hope and the blessing that the ministry of this child would announce. Zachariah and Elizabeth were devout worshippers of God, but they too needed a saviour. Just as their good deeds could not give them a son, so their good living could not save them. But this wonderful child named John, the one who would bring joy and gladness at his birth, lived a life that focused on one moment. That moment we find in John chapter 1 verse 29 as we read at the start of our service. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was what all of John's amazing and miraculous life had been leading to. This was why he had been born into the world to point to the fulfillment of the ancient promise that the baby would be born who would crush the serpent's head, who would deliver his people from their sins. And in a day when a despot Herod ruled, he would come to be the true and just king of the Jews. And in a time when a corrupt and disbelieving Sadducees were acting as high priests, he would be the true high priest who would make the full and final sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people. And after centuries of silence from God, he was the living word, the word of God in human flesh. As the writer to the Hebrews said, Hebrews 1 verse 3, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. This is the one we celebrate as we come to Christmas. The one for whose return we must be prepared. I'm not sure how you're getting on in your preparations for Christmas, but believe me, it really doesn't matter. But it matters eternally that you are ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to do that now. Maybe you need to make preparation for Christ's return. Please do get in touch with me if you'd like to talk about how you can be prepared for that final Advent season so that when that glorious day breaks through, that you may be found living with an expectant faith and fidelity to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who wants to deal with your sin so that you would live forgiven and forever with him. Let's pray together. Father, in these days of Advent, we pray that you might prepare our hearts, that you would make us ready for Christ's return, that we would live repentant and forgiven, that we would live in devotion to Christ, walking through his strength day by day in the path that he leads. Thank you for the one you sent ahead, John the baptizer, who would grow and preach and uh, redirect the hearts and lives of many people. But supremely, he lived to be a signpost pointing to Jesus. Lord, to this you call us. May we day by day make much of the Christ of Christmas. May we lift him up before men and women, boys and girls. That many would see him and live. Many would see him and find life in abundance. Hear our prayers that we offer in Jesus' name.